So, Bob, I thought we would read patron emails and respond to them. What do you say? I say yes. Okay, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am your old friend from graduate school uh, and a therapist in practice here in Seattle as well. How could people find you if they wanted to hire you as a therapist in this area? I just say go out on the street and yell. (laughs) (laughs) Bob. Um, uh, my website, bobgettle.com. Bobgettle.com. Bob as in Bob, Gettle as in G-O-E-T-T-L-E. It's a weird name. Is it German? Yeah, German. And actually, you know what? Here's, here's one for you. It means little God. Did I ever tell you that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which I used to think was cool, but now I think, who has the hubris to little name God. themselves little God? Except besides me. Yeah. So God, God, Godel, Godel. Um, when you come over from Ellis Island, they give you seven letters. So originally, it's G O with the two dots, T T L E I N, which is Gertlein. Oh, which means little god. Oh, okay. So they just chopped it off. And is your real name Robert? Robert, correct. I don't think I don't think I ever thought about that. Robert. Yeah. You um, know, if I could trade it in, Bob. It's it's just I. It's a terrible name. Bob. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I, I've always known you f- for all this time, and so I'm just used to it. But yeah, when you think about the name Bob, you think old guy. Old guy, your uncle, who's sort of questionable. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah, there's not, I wonder how many people younger than you are named Bob. Oh, yeah. Or choose to say Bob instead of right. Rob, Robert. Yeah, yeah, no, most of them are Rob. Rob. Yeah, even in my generation, they're mostly Rob. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Why did you go Bob? Your family went Bob? Yeah. So they gave, they kid. named you Robert, but then deemed you Rob, Bob, Bob, and then you just now go by Bob. Well, yeah, it was Bobby when I was a kid. Oh, you were Bobby? Yeah. Okay. Bobby. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a 70s. That's a great 70s kid name. Right. Bobby. Yeah. A lot of Bobbies. It's a terrible name any other era. <laughs> Maybe even then, too. We used to call you Bobby G. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I still get that occasionally. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is from patron David. David writes that a YouTube personality and icon in the gaming community passed away after fighting cancer. His name was Total Biscuit on YouTube. Have you heard of Total Biscuit? No. Apparently, a, a, I didn't. Maybe I've come across Total Biscuit stuff on YouTube and didn't recognize or note that it was Total Biscuit, but apparently a very beloved figure in the YouTube gaming world. And Patron David says that he was deeply saddened by the news of it, and it made him feel, um, uh, you know, to think about his own losses in his own life, and he's grieving. And he said lots of people are grieving. And he saw a Reddit post that said, I know I don't deserve to grieve because I didn't know him personally. Um, Bob, what do you think about this idea? Nuts. Nuts? <laughs> yeah, man, you feel the way you feel, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you. I've never picked a single emotion I've ever had, and if I have sadness, then I have sadness. Yeah. I don't think emotions are about deserving in the least. Yeah. But what about this idea of like, well, why are you sad? You didn't know him. He's not. He's not your husband or your father or your brother like why are you so because because some people get really upset you know they're not just like oh bummer you know right you know they'll they'll have similar emotions to 
situations in which they lost a parent or a spouse or something. Right. Um, what do you say to that? To people who say that's there's something wrong with you or something wrong with your life or something for choosing to be so attached to someone that you've never met. Right. What do you think about that? Well, you know, one of my favorite things about living out here in the Northwest is occasionally people get lost out there in the mountains, in the woods, you know, and it isn't just like their family shows up to look for them, you know, like strangers show up, not Mm. just the pros, like the fire and rescue people or whoever that is, but just regular folks show up. And what I think is it's an extension of empathy. It's a recognition of self and the other. Mm. And so when, when you're person here is noticing this thing on Reddit where somebody's having sadness and questioning whether or not it's okay. I think they probably feel embarrassed about it. And I think it's okay to feel that way. You know, whatever. You feel the way you feel. But but what they're doing, I think, is just participating in the fact that they're a member of the species. Mm. Just like people take great joy in you know, when their sports team does well, like, hey, we won the Eagles, we won the F- Super Bowl, but we didn't win. I didn't mm. play. I never played football in my life. Or even an extension of that, watching an athlete from another country wh- whom doesn't even represent your community right. doing well, you can cry or yeah. celebrate or feel all the feels. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful analogy, Bob. I, I think I'm going to bank that one for myself in terms of when someone is lost in the mountains, uh, a huge group of people will respond and volunteer their time yeah. and because they care. And probably most of them have never even met the person. Probably. I mean, maybe the person's an asshole, yeah. you know, but it doesn't matter because we care about uh, not only our species, but even anything that we identify as having emotions and, and yeah. being and suffering. You right. Know? And so whether that's polar bears, it's like, you know, yeah. seeing a, there was this one video of this one polar bear that uh, I'll never forget. I've talked about on the podcast before in which it was probably like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. For some stupid reason, I clicked on it, the video, and it the polar bear has some sort of seizure in a zoo. And so someone's filming the polar bear because they're at the zoo. They're like, oh, polar bear. And this polar bear has this like god-awful seizure and falls off the rock into the water and drowned. Oh, God. And it was... It's burned in my head because yeah. it was just this violent, you know, somewhat preventable because it's like seizures are horrible. But if there was some sort of way to have grabbed the polar bear or not let the polar bear out that day, or I don't know, it's like the drowning. It's just so tragic. And so, uh, and I never met that polar bear, right? Presumably. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff like this, and there's stuff like more recent deaths, like Kate Spade, the oh, right. fashion designer. Did you know this fashion designer? No. Did you know people who knew this fashion designer? Colleen, my wife. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't know this fashion designer, but I knew a lot of people who knew her and loved her. Yeah. Uh, what did Colleen? What did Colleen say about Kate Spade? Anything? Has ed, ed, educate me about who, she makes purses. Okay, <laughs> and and is an interesting personality. I'm guessing or, or something. Probably most of them are. I think. Yeah, yeah. And then Anthony Bourdain. You heard about him, right? What's your um, relationship with Anthony Bourdain? Um, like, I've seen him on or, the shows. Or no, on the shows. And then my my nephew loves him. Like his show where he go all over the world and you know eat the local food and 
you know, like a real mensch, like a, just a decent guy wandering the planet. And I just feel sad. You know, I think that's, we don't have enough of that. Yeah, I I read his book yeah. or I listened to it on audio. He reads it too. And th- this was this was early aughts, I'm thinking. Or wait, mid-aughts. I was listening to his book on tape, his um, Kitchen Confidential, I think it's called. And <clears throat> not only is it just interesting and he has a very raw kind of straightforward no bullshit manner of writing and reading, but he's lived an interesting life. And, um, also I've, you know, did you ever work in restaurants? Oh, fast food when I was a kid. Okay. Well, I, I had a fair number of restaurant jobs when I was younger. Yeah. Like my very first job was in a Chinese restaurant in Issaquah. Oh my God. I didn't know that. Yeah. I was, I didn't even have a social security number. So I was getting like, paid under the table at first and because you know chinese people don't care about the law so much at all times you know and uh and apparently japanese people being myself um <laughs> and i uh, um so i worked there for i don't know a few years and i was i was 13 years old so it's very impressionable on me you know yeah and then i i worked at some other i worked at denny's actually for a while. What'd you do? I was a dishwasher and busboy. Yeah. That was an experience in Bellevue at Eastgate. It's not there anymore. I worked at, let's see, there's just got to be other restaurants. But the big restaurant that I really worked at that really, there's there's two big restaurant experiences I had growing up, which is one, I worked at the Salish Lodge, which is at Snoqualmie Falls. Really? What'd you do there? I was uh, like a server banquet person. No kidding. Yeah, my my brother was a chef there. My brother, my brother, for the first half of his career life was a a chef. You know, really a, cool, like a hardcore chef, chef. You yeah, know, with the hat and the all the things yeah, and fifteen hundred orders to fill in ten minutes. Yeah, and fancy because Salish is like, you know, it's it's semi fancy ish. You know, uh, people come there. If anyone's seen Twin Peaks, the TV yeah. show. The, there's a lodge that's it seemingly it's it looks like it's going to fall down a cliff and it's right by this this waterfall that's the Salish Lodge. It used right. to be called the Snoqualmie Falls Lodge, but now it's called Salish Lodge. Salish is a lo- local uh, or an an Indian an American Indian tribe in the area. Anyway, yeah. and so my brother got me a job there when I was like 19 or something, and man, was that job educational and hard. I, I mean. Because the, there's all these different banquet rooms, and they would have Thanksgiving banquets, and so I would work oh, on Thanksgiving yeah, and stuff. That's intense. And you're on your feet, and you were supposed to wear black shoes, like right. it was required, because you wore like basically like a mini tuxedo kind yeah. of thing walking around. And back then, the shoe technology was not very good. Like they didn't make um, black shoes that were that looked good, but also gripped the floor. Yeah, they they only had black shoes with those leather bottoms. Right. And leather bottoms are essentially like um, ice. Yeah. You know, they're as slippery as like ice. Yeah. And so, and when you're on a tile floor with water on it, because there's all, any working kitchen is constantly uh, damp, you know. And I I took one, I, and the other thing was, was they told you to, I loved, I loved the cart, 
you know, because it's like you can't go wrong with the cart. But we do these banquets, and like the one thing I realized about banquets is that when it's mealtime, you have to get everyone's food out. You have to make everyone's food. You have to plate everyone's food, and you have to get everyone's food out in a relatively short amount of time. Oh, yeah. Because you can't have like one table completely done with their meal while other people don't even have their meal yet. Like it just feels weird, yeah. right? And and plus like you got to get these people in and out and and anyway. So there's this huge pressure to just like get it out, you know, blah blah blah. Da, 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 you just, and you're rushing out there and the thing that they wanted you to do was to have it on a humongous tray. Uh-huh. So you and you know, you know those waiter trays oh, that yeah. you hold on your side, you know, like you're pushing up your hair kind of a thing, you know? <laughs> and, but it, was a, it wasn't the normal tray side. It was, this, it was this oval long tray where you could stack, I believe... So, you know, they had plates, and then they had the metal frames, the metal tops, covers. Right. So you could stack, like, a, probably, like, one, at least another layer, and you could carry, like, I don't know, maybe 16 or 20... Uh, 20... Um, maybe 16 plates with covers, with food, on one arm, okay? Freaking heavy. Yeah, but if you, if you, um, if you did it right, it wasn't very laborious, you yeah. know? But, but, but people obviously get good at being able to balance. It's like, it's like a stage show, you know? You get good at being able to do that. And I got okay at it, but I wasn't that great. And then combine that with my slicks of shoes and the wet tile, and I went down. Oh, wow. And there's nothing worse because all this... Sh- so I'm in the kitchen. All this... Sh- all that, like... There's like 10 chefs, you know, and all of them just look... Because this is just racket, you know, and everyone turns, and they're just like, well, those are 10 pl- 20 plates we're not going to get back, so yeah. back to the drawing board. Thank you, Kirk, for yeah. just, you know, destroying our hard work there, right? you know? And so... And then the, the head chef is like, thank you, Kirk, for just, you know deprofiting our business by about probably about $40, you know, thanks for just, you know, bringing our numbers down and you know, we're going to have to just throw it on the floor before we cook it. Yeah. (laughs) Next time, just go to the cash register and catch it on fire. Why don't you? (laughs) Um, uh, And I did that at Sun Sun too. Actually, when I was 13, I dropped a big uh, rack of tea, tea cups and, you know, those little Chinese restaurant tea cups and, and broke a bunch and man, just, just just nothing worse than that. Um, anyway, so uh, and then later on, I had a close friend. You remember Donna? Sure. Yeah. So she worked at uh, the Painted Table downtown. Oh, I remember that place. Which was in Alexis Hotel. Yeah, Alexis Hotel. Thank you. Nice. Your memory, your head is a trap, man. You 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 do not forget things. You you're a savant when it comes to stuff like that. <laughs> Um, seriously, there are things that you remember. I mean, I feel like I'm pretty good with you memory. Are. I mean, I feel like people will come to, like, see, people will say, like, I just said, Anthony or Bourdain, um, Kitchen Confidential, right. listen to it, mid-aughts. Like, right. who, like, that was 13 years ago. I, and I can, because re- I remember where I was driving as I was listening to it right. in the car, and I had to have been in my house by your house now. Oh, right. And yeah, I lived right. there in the mid-aughts. And anyway, the point is, is that, you have a kick-ass memory, Thank and you. so I, um, uh, so Donna was a close friend, and she, she, uh, the painted table was like, 
sort of like just below those super high-end restaurants in Seattle. Yeah. It was considered to be like one of the most um, competitive, well-reviewed. It had a famous chef, you know, someone who in the trades around the United States, people knew him. I think he was half Korean, which gave him kind of an interesting edge. But he, uh, so she, Donna, would talk a lot about what it was like to work there. And I learned so much, man. Like, I have so much more respect for chefs. And so listening to Anthony Bourdain's book, like, just fleshed that whole world out. Because if you don't know it, you just think, ah, you know, just casually people cooking food, you know, just like, you know, whatever. But these people take it so seriously. And, and there's, and it's hard work too. You know, there's, there's flames and you burn yourself right. and you drop knives like they you know chefs who work in these places they have shoes with protection so that if you drop a knife it won't it won't go through your foot because right. that happens sometimes um i remember donna had burn marks always gnarly burn marks cuz she was like the grill person and just gnarly burn marks all over her arms and she was just like, well, you know, that's just the way it is, you know, because, you know, and, and that, yeah, that was the other part of it was like everyone, it was almost like the military or a police yeah. force or something. Right. It was like, there's no time to complain. No. You know, suck it up, kid. And if you can't take it, we'll find someone else because there's other people who are dying to get on that grill job or right. dying for that, you know, eventual working your way up to sous chef kind of situation, you know, and, uh, it was just super and then after the shift was over it was like firefighters having fought a fire everyone sort of relaxes and there's camaraderie and lots of alcohol yeah. and lots of drugs yeah. and the wait staff gets involved like it's this team effort you know everyone's like we're going to do it tonight and we're going to nail it and we're not going to have any problems and we're going to deal with that asshole customer. And when that person sends that thing back, we're going to deliver. And when, when we have 16 steaks we got to cook at the same time, we're going to make it happen. You know, this is, yeah. And then at the end of the night, it's just this huge relief. And then everyone drinks, and then they're up till 4 in the morning. Because these restaurants have a bar, yeah. and so you just lock the front door, and everyone and the bartender stays behind, and everyone just drinks to oblivion. You sleep in till noon the next day, and then your shift starts at three, and the whole thing starts all over again. Right. And just that lifestyle, and uh, and one of which I would never want to, but and also the artistry of it all too. Oh, it's yeah. like it's like edible art, right? People consider it to be like it's not just cooking a steak. It's like I'm an artist. Yeah, I'm creating a a work of beauty. Yeah, that is going to give someone pleasure right now. You know, it's like, there's a lot, there's not a lot of art you can say that about where it's just like, I'm going to, I'm going to make something right now and you're going to enjoy it right now. You need it to live, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so anyway, listening to Anthony, when I think of Anthony or Bourdain, I think about all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, And, and also I, I know someone who has met Anthony Bourdain and he said that Anthony or Bourdain wasn't really like the way you would think he would be because you know according to his persona you think he'd be like this gruff um you know abrasive in your yeah in your face you know like wouldn't really listen to you but couldn't be opposite he was 
nice, listen to you, eye contact, caring, interesting, um, treated everyone the same. And uh, so, yeah, for him to kill himself, I think he was 61. I feel like, I mean, Kate Spade must feel pretty bad to a lot of people as well, just because it's, it's, you're, it's, you're so young. And with Anthony Bourdain, it's like um, a lot of people are like, well, he had so much, you know? And how strict, because he had a you know hit TV show. He's yeah. probably rolling in dough. Yeah. People loved him. Yeah, and it it's a shocker to people as to it 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 it's dissonant to people. You know, it's like because I think a lot of people equate um, success or the way someone comes across to mean that they're not sad. Do you right. know what I mean? Right, that they don't have troubles. Right. Yeah. And or they equate um, when people are sad that that means they're going to kill themselves or something, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, what do you think that's about, that misconception? So you're saying, oh, uh, well, actually, I think that's sort of the opposite of what we're talking about. That would be like a failure in empathy where I cannot get out of my shoes and into your shoes. Maybe because you live in a world that's so vastly different from mine that I don't have a way to imagine it. Mm. I imagine rich guy, successful on TV, and then my brain fills in a lot of the gaps about well, what that means. And that's like, oh, well, that's a happy guy who's successful, you know, who drives a Ferrari and gets a blowjob every other day. And, you know, nobody's life is really like that. But when I don't, for whatever reasons, probably a million reasons, I don't take the time to kind of imagine, well, what actually is that guy's life like? You know, not that I could, because I don't know how he spends his time. I just see him a little bit, this little slice of on camera. Right. That's all I get. So anyway, so I think, I think um, I, it's, a, it's a human, uh, we're, we're not perfect. We're not great. We're not always good at empathizing. Even, you know, even guys like you and me do this for a living. Yeah, especially with famous people, I find. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. You know, people will attack famous people with impunity. You yeah. know, just be like, oh, at Jennifer Lawrence, you're, you're a slut, yeah. you know? And it's like, Jesus Christ, yeah. the, this is a human being. Like, right. if, if it's one thing that the breaking down of the barrier between um, the rabble like us and famous people with the use of Twitter or YouTube or, or something, oh, yeah. you realize, like, there is nothing different about us and famous people. No. It's just, they just have a lot more eyes on them, but they yeah. have the exact same insecurities. Right. And, you know, like the whole thing about the uh, Sixers coach. Um, do you follow this story? No, I don't know this one. Oh, uh, the 76ers uh, basketball team yeah. coach. He uh, has recently uh, uh, been fired slash resigned because he and or his wife were creating fake Twitter accounts to attack uh, people who were attacking them on Twitter. Oh. But they were also using these accounts to attack the players oh. of the 76ers who Yuck. were who were um, perceived as somehow politically opposed to some of the things that it's it's comp it's a very interesting complicated wow. story. But the point is is um, that uh, you know these when you th or and all you got to do is to look to our president to realize that uh, even being the president of the United States or the most powerful 
country, the most powerful military, arguably the most powerful man who has ever lived on this planet, is clearly insecure at times. Oh, and will uh, will attack. And and I I don't follow it that closely, but I've seen reports of Trump attacking people on Twitter, like just like a soccer mom who says something kind of. Uh, adversarial to him and he'll respond to her and say like how dare you or he'll block her you know like i might be exaggerating a little bit but the point is is that famous people have the exact same set of feelings and exact same insecurities as anyone else does and so anthony bourdain is no uh no different from that and but also i find that when I hear people, I've been listening to podcasts talk about Anthony Bourdain uh, and his suicide, and I find that there's there's often a thing that people will say is like, um, they'll say something like, it just goes to show you that even though you have it all, it doesn't protect you from sadness or something like that. No. And I just find that to be like so obvious to me. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because one, what is quote unquote having it all? You know, it it's because we um in our society privilege class and fame so much it's it's we we look at those people and go like they've arrived they can just sit back and be happy for the rest of their lives knowing what they've achieved but that no one is like that no one very few people i can imagine just other than buddhists i imagine can just sit down and say like okay i'm done I've achieved everything. I no longer need to impress people. My self-esteem is complete. Do you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> I doubt that the Buddhists are really good at that either. <laughs> right. So, and the, and the other misconception I, I think is that people really just don't understand, which makes sense because of a lot of reasons that they don't really understand depression and or uh, suicide. Yeah. There's this notion that the, uh, a depressed person looks depressed or their cartoon version of what depression looks like. And two, that suicide is some kind of noticeable thought. Oh, you know, like, well, surely I would, you know, people would look for signs of Anthony Bourdain's suicidal thoughts. Uh, Robin Williams was suicidal for decades, I think off and on. Yeah. And he was arguably the most opposite of suicide in terms of the way he acted. You know, right. he seemed so jubilant and yeah. happy and energetic. Suicide is something that crosses people's minds, and unless they choose to tell you, you'll never know. And yeah, it's funny because 85% of the population has had thoughts about suicide at one point or another. Interesting. And then the other thing that I think is relevant here is that 30% of completed suicides are decided within five minutes. Really? Yeah. And they know that because, you know, the folks that survive, but for the grace of God, you know, they, they'll say, 30% of them say, I, I just thought of this five minutes ago and acted on my impulse. Right. Which is the tragedy of yeah. it all. So in we that, how, uh, that if there was something that could be done, yeah. some measure, some connection, some plan to prevent them with the means to do it, they would get through that five yeah. minutes and and be happy with the decision that they decided not to kill themselves. Right. Having said all that, 
there are also people, in my estimation, who are so determined and so... This is a rare individual, but there are some people who they just want to die. Yeah. Whether it's from a medical condition or 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 a psychological one. Sure. I mean, psycho so there are some psychological conditions and ongoing emotional turmoil that any one of us would would contemplate suicide as a super viable option given the amount of suffering that 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 produces. And it's hard to imagine if you've never had yeah. that happen, it's yeah. hard to imagine what that would be like. Right. Um, I, I can imagine it kind of uh, because there, there's been brief moments where I've had some massive medical, not massive, but like probably minor medical problem, you know. Scared the hell out of you. Well, scared, but also just de- it's depressing to, to, to feel like this is my life now. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll always be thinking about that. You know, this is, this is going to be this, this constant nag in, into my happiness that just is going, every time I feel happy, this thing is going to insert itself into that and ruin it. And it just feels hopeless. And it's like, well, yeah, I'm going to die eventually anyway. Why suffer the last phase of this? Why not just take it to the next phase and and just end it, you know? And it's hard for a person to imagine accommodating whatever the trouble is and finding out what life is like with this thing on board. Generally, well, I don't know if generally it, it perhaps people overestimate the impact. I don't even like that. I just said that. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine it's sometimes true. Absolutely. Yeah. For some people, it, if they wait long enough, perspective or um, uh, acceptance, so to speak, yeah. will uh, prevail. Yeah. And suicide will seem completely irrelevant, and uh, they can appreciate their life for what it is. Um, also, there are some people that it just doesn't happen. You know, it's too much suffering. Yeah. Or... Um, they just don't want to accept it for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. And I feel like for them, me personally, that they deserve the right to end their life. And they and it's a tragic ending, but their life was already tragic. And just because they were alive doesn't necessarily mean that they were... You know, we tend to look at life as this wonderful thing. Right. Life, you know, being alive and death is death. Death is bad. Alive, being alive. For some people, it's flipped. Yeah. For some people, it is like being alive is shit. Yeah. Being alive is terrible. Like, I'd rather one either go to heaven or just not exist than to be here, you know, for this long. And so I just think that. I don't. I don't know exactly what I'm saying or why, but I. I just feel like. I wonder if, for example, with Kate Spade or with Anthony Bourdain, if they were in an afterlife right now, and or could speak from the abyss, if they would say, "Don't worry about me. I'm. Believe me. I'm glad I'm gone." Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I f- possible. I feel like there's there's this kind of universal reaction around it around suicide that is like 
it's it could have been prevented, you know, and and for sure because I would in my mind it's like probably ninety eight percent of the time it could have been prevented and should have been prevented, you know, yeah, and for the betterment of the individual, and obviously for those who love that person, right. That's one of the things, man. Once you kill yourself, you no longer have say over the influence that you have on other people. And if you're a parent, you've just fucked your kid. Yeah. So I don't think you're advocating for suicide. No, I'm not. But but I'm also advocating for everyone to understand those who think about suicide yeah. and who complete suicide. Right. That it it's not, you know, because like one of the things that people will say sometimes is that when people survive jumping off a bridge, for yeah. example, they uh, will report afterwards that as soon as they jumped, yeah. they regretted it. Right. And certainly that can be true for a lot of people. Sure. But that's a biological mechanism that kicks in. Like, there, you know, there's a reason why suicide is, is contemplated for so long before someone actually attempts uh, on average. Yeah. There's a reason why that is, is because as an organism, we have a huge mechanism in our brain that prevents us from harming ourselves. Yeah. And so that needs that there needs to be so much motivation to overcome that. Right. Um, or some means that makes it easier or something. Right. Um, and so when you make that leap, uh, whether or not your whole brain wants to do it or not, um, I mean, whether even though your whole brain obviously wanted to do it because you actually, you know, in all likelihood spent years thinking about it, you probably went to the bridge 50 different times and, you know, and you jump like there's a part of your body that flinches at the last minute and you regret it. You know what I mean? Well, humans are that way with a lot of the decisions they make. Yeah. They get buyer's remorse. Right. You know, they like immediately have regret. I don't know that I think I like what you're saying because I don't think we should necessarily treat the regret like that means this was a mistake. Right. That all suicides are a mistake. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. that's the way that I feel like a lot of media are talking about it. Yeah. And and it obviously it's the safer route and I'm taking a risk by by saying the things that I'm saying, right? I think a listener has to listen to you very carefully to understand that you are not advocating for suicide. You're just not willing to condemn people who complete it. Right. And I'm not willing to say that it was necessarily like if we could bring, if we could somehow like revive them from the dead, that they would say, thank you for reviving. Me. Yeah, they might not. Right. They might be like, fuck you. <laughs> like I, that, this was my choice. Right. And you know, because I feel like when people die, say of cancer or something like Total Biscuit, there's a it's there's a different vibe to it. You know, it, it's tragic and sad, and yeah. But it's like, well, the universe took that person from us, right? Rather than that person took took themselves away from us, and we could have prevented it, right? And, and we should have prevented it. You know, maybe what you're saying in part is that suicide scares us. And so we take a uh, absolute stand against it, right? And and we ha- can't imagine a situation in which death is like a preferable outcome or something, right? You know, a chosen outcome, right? And f- and for some, that's that's how it is. Um, again, as a clinician, um, I am obligated ethically and standard of care in the vast majority of cases, in fact, probably every case that I'd come across clinically to to do everything I can to prevent. 
and I'm going to do a deep dive on it. It's one of the deep dives that the patrons actually asked for. By the way, I'm still completely discombobulated, <laughs> if you will, discombobulated <laughs> of uh, from the move, and I, I don't have enough space or time to actually do any deep dives, but I'm definitely going to get to them soon. Um, you should bring me in on that one. On suicide? suicide yeah. Oh, okay. We'll come talk. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'd like to anyways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to actually um, take the opportunity to just do a, to do a super, like, in-depth uh, reading of the history and the laws and case studies nice. and assessment tools and practices and documentation. Because I feel like I, over, I don't know, the past five years... I have developed a thing in my head, but haven't formalized it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I find that when I supervise, I feel like I'm beating my head up against the wall because I, I'm telling them, I, 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 I like train them a lot on suicide assessment and prevention, but yeah. they will, there's something about it that's too complex or too scary or, or something that. The product I so I so I'll you know present you know and train and everything and then I go okay so go out there uh, do an assessment on that client and let me see the documentation and then the documentation is like half of what I would want them to be doing or the documentation kind of misses the whole point like they'll um, I think it's because they just don't have a lot of experience in like knowing what to what to emphasize you know there there will be something in there about like. Um, you know, uh, they want to live. They and they they make this statement like, "Well, I I would never want to die," you know, but nothing in there talks about the history of their suicidal ideation or whether they've attempted in the past. Right. And I'm like, how is this an assessment? If I maybe according to this assessment, they could have attempted last week, and you just you haven't mentioned like right. it, there's nothing in there that says anything, and right. like that is like one of the major data points. Like, have they attempted before? Right. You know. Um, uh, also, you know, what's their statement around their motivation to actually do it or not? That's you know, that's good that you're mentioning that, but I just feel like there it's almost like there's too many details. You know. Yeah, there's and, a lot of risk factors and also protective factors to consider. Right. Yeah. Things that aren't necessarily intuitive. You know. Yeah. Like exactly. anniversary events and all this kind of right. stuff. And and right. so and it's the list is too long for them to keep in their head, you know, and then they hear all these random weird things like, um, you know, contracts for safety are, um, are unethical or something. Have you ever heard people say that? (laughs) No. Yeah. Is that people think that? So back when we were going through, and maybe this is for our episode, they would just say, just contract for safety and forget about it. You know? (laughs) I mean, that wasn't exactly what they said, but that's essentially what they said. Right. Well, so my estimation is that, um, at a certain point, in a similar shortcut manner, trainers would say, you can't contract for safety because what they're really saying is don't just rely on contracting yeah. for safety. But as a stupid shortcut, they say, stop contracting for safety. It's, oh, un- it's yeah. unethical. Right. Or that's the message that p- trainees the, walk out with or yeah. something. Yeah, Right. And so, um, so I'll hear that. I'll be like, I heard you're not supposed to contract for safety anymore. And I'm like... Why the fuck wouldn't you contract for safety? Like, that shouldn't be the only thing you do. But like, what's wrong with it? Right. It's it's somehow considered to be like unethical or anyway. Yeah. 
So when we get back, I want to talk a little bit about, about a little bit more about Anthony Bourdain's suicide and 13 reasons why. What do you say? Oh, I don't know about... Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, do so now. Uh, we're trying to get up to our next goal so that we can create a scholarship fund for listeners of the podcast who are in need of cash for their graduate degree. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, right? What's your goal? Uh, we're trying to get up to 900 patrons, and we're around 800 right now. All right. So if Way you're go, out people. there and you know 99 other people, like, get on it, right? Okay. So, um, you know, there's this thing called suicide con- contagion. What do you know about that? It happens. Yeah. What's the definition? What's the process? Well, as I understand it, it's when it happens with young people a lot. Um, if somebody does it... It sort of um, leads the or paves the road for others to do it. Right. It essentially the psychological process is that either people have been contemplating it for a long time themselves, right, or it was sort of in the background, or they they're they're a potential person to have suicidal ideation or or behavior. And when you see other people do it, it somehow frees up the pathway in your yeah. in your mind to actually see it through. Right. It's I guess it, it in a in an odd way it's sort of like having a role model or something. Yeah. Uh observational learning. Yeah, you're yeah. just like, "Oh, okay, that's a thing." You know, even though it everyone knows you can or most people know you can do it. You don't need someone to pave the way before you, but but also there's a there's a a thing of grief that's involved, like you might, like if it's a friend of yours that killed themselves, yeah. it's like, well, I'm, or your spouse, it's like, well, I might as well go to and meet meet them on the other side. Right. Um, First degree relative, even a peer that you're not necessarily in contact with, but who's in your your loose circle. Or even a famous person. Or a famous person. Right. Especially if it's someone that you model. Right. Yeah. So... So that's suicide contagion, and it's real, and it's a you know, um, you know observed phenomenon. We have a policy in my skills class wherein we can't talk about uh, self-harm, even non-suicidal self-injury. Um, people are, are not allowed to talk about the specifics because it's also contagious. And when I was young and foolish uh, and starting out learning DBT, one of my people in my class talked about a, a non-suicidal behavior that she did one week and we didn't interrupt it and somebody did somebody mimicked it now nobody got nobody died nobody was seriously injured but um that was a hard lesson so now we just say and you know it was dbt people always say this i was young and ignorant and learned it um the hard way that you can't talk about that you can call it target behavior you can say i had an urge to do one i had a i had i did a target behavior but you can't talk about the details because those are also contagious. Non-suicidal self-injury also contagious. What interesting. So in your DBT group, yeah. a, a member, a client will say something like uh, I guess in the orientation you tell them that oh, they can't talk about it. Yes. Yeah. But people forget. Yeah. And instead they use the phrase 
I had to, I had an urge or I actually you know did a target behavior. Right. Do they does everyone know what they mean when they say that? They might. It depends. Like if if you knew that my problem was alcohol cuz I talked about going to AA. Oh, so target behavior could be lots of things it in could a, be. in a DBT group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because they're not saying the target behavior, it's probably known, oh, it must be one of the one of the forbidden things. Yeah. Cuz if it was a different target behavior like um, going online and trying to have promiscuous sex, right. for example, they would just say it, right? No, no, we would say you can't talk about that either because oh. that's a behavior that you're trying to eliminate. So, so yeah, but but DBT was invented for folks with suicidal and self harm impulses. So you know, everybody in a cla- in a classic DBT skills class would know what the other person was talking about. And if there are fresh wounds, we say long sleeves. You got to wear long sleeves because no. it triggers other people. Yeah, band aids. Right. Not okay. Interesting that a group focused on suicide and non-suicidal self-injury, you can't talk about suicide or non-suicidal self-injury. You can talk about what you're doing about it, but you can't talk about the fact that you did it. For yeah, I, this. I, I'm sure it's yeah. a good model, but yeah. it's just ironic. I know, it's sort of ironic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, we don't care about scars. Don't care about People scars. People have scars on their arms or wherever. I'd say let your freak flag fly. Well, that and... That would be condemning everyone to like yeah. long sleeves and shame, I guess. About, shame, about right? Their so past I say, and... short sleeves, scars, cool. Fresh wounds, no. With the message of not that there's something shameful about what you did, but we don't want to trigger other people. Oh, absolutely, it's just about contagion, right? So the, the last motivation that is clear in social psychology is mob mentality, which is that when you we we like to believe that we are independent motivational machines. Yeah. We are not. We are absolute. We are herd animals. We are. Um, and when we see someone else doing something, we do it, uh, or we're highly influenced to do it. Let's just say. Yeah. Uh, you know it. I'm, you know it's hard to imagine that in yourself, but it's not hard when you actually look at actual other people. It's it's always easier to see this sort of thing in right. other people. You know. Well, we'd like to think that we would do the noble thing or the right thing, or or just the thing that's of independent thought. You know. Yeah. Um, all, all you have to do is look at your haircut when you were 15 to realize that you, <laughs> you, were, not, you were not thinking independently. I never had a mullet. I never had a mullet. I had a brief mullet. Um, <laughs> I need I need a photo. It's not a it's not super pronounced. It's probably I think I had a mullet for like two months or for, you know in between one haircut. Hey listeners, know? I think you should write in. We need photos. We need them up. I mean, I'll show you a photo. But so my hair is um, very curly when it grows out. So in the, oh yeah, I so in the that. back it's um, it's curly. So it's a little. It's a, you know it's party in the front, party in the back. And sort of party in the front too. <laughs> I guess business on the, business on the sides. Yeah. <laughs> but um, like, if, like honestly, if if I showed you a picture, I, I, this is me trying to salvage myself. <laughs> if you saw a picture, you wouldn't know it was a mullet unless you really looked for the curls in the back. If that makes any sense, right? You know. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when I was 15, 14, I had a step in my hair because that was big in the mid-80s. Oh, right. yeah. Um, I had a flock of seagulls uh, throughout the 80s. Oh, or, I've or seen that. Early yeah. 90s. Yeah. Um, grew my hair out in the 90s. I like, remember that. Like any respectable Seattleite. In and, a band. Yeah, I mean, uh, so anyway, the point is, is that um, fashion, hair, speech, belief system... What you eat, 
What was with the buzz cut? For you, me? Yeah, you had a buzz cut when I met you. Yeah. Um, I, I've always just liked to do different kind of haircuts. Yeah. Like, when I became a facu- full-time faculty member 10 years ago, yeah. I, for the first time in my life, and also maybe just coinciding with age, I decided for the first time I needed sort of a consistent haircut. So for the past 10 years, I've had um, kind of a consistent haircut. But if you look at some pictures, I have some, I have some weird haircuts in there sometimes. Not out of choice, but just I just yeah. sort of tell the haircutter, do what you got to do. And sometimes yeah. they do weird things, you know. Um, but before that, I would always just want like, oh, I just want something different. So I think I just shaved my head because I was thinking it would be fun to do. You You're know? the only person I knew who cut his own hair. I just yeah. thought that was cool. Well, I couldn't afford it. You know, oh, yeah, I, I mean, right. none of us. I would cut my friend's hair, too. Um, to save $15 or oh, $10 yeah. or something on something that was actually not that hard, yeah. you know, for for men's short hair. It's right. Once you learn the basics, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I would cut my own hair. Um, sometimes it was disastrous. But, you know, when you're young, you don't. At least I didn't. <laughs> I didn't care. Um, well, you know, you inspired me. At one point, I was buzzing my head. Oh, you were? Yeah, after we got out of school. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, you know, a Floby makes it real easy. <laughs> did you have one? No, my dad did, though. Maybe that's where I got it from. My dad would cut our hair to uh-huh. save money when, uh-huh. when we were kids. Uh, and then he had a floby. I think he would cut his own hair. No kidding. Yeah, because the because f- the thing about cutting your hair is the the back of your head is really hard to cut. Oh, I know, impossible. Yeah, you need to use like a mirror. Mirror, and then it's all backwards. Yeah, it's just it gets kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, I mean, unless you just sort of have a like a fade in the back, like it's it, it any sort of nuance you're not going to be able to get. Right. But a floby, on the other hand, you just put this attachment uh, that sets a certain length. Yeah. And and you just sort of you just sort of rub it just all over the back of your, your head, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and minimal cleanup. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know, a Floby is it's a razor that you attach to your own vacuum cleaner, and it cuts your hair while simultaneously uh, vacuuming up all the shavings, mm-hmm. so that uh, you don't have to clean it up afterwards. Is it powered by suction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Oh. I, 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 from my memory, you hook it up to an actual... Yeah. Like, it doesn't come with its own suction no. thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like vacuum. A, it's basically an attachment for your vacuum. Right. You know, that okay. has a razor on the end with, uh, with length um, uh, attachments, right? Right. Anyway, that's where we talk about Floby. Um, so, I wanted to, so that's a real thing. And after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, I, you just have to wonder if Anthony Bourdain was influenced by Kate Spade, you know? I had that thought. Yeah, and then you got to wonder, like, are there others along right. the, coming along the way? How many people in the public are have already maybe followed suit? Um, which, again, 99% of the time is a tragic thing that could be prevented, and the individual would be happy if we could get them through that time. Yeah. Um, the commitment law in Washington State is set up so that you can commit somebody without court involvement for three days. And it's set up that way because for most people, the urge will pass within three days. That's why it's set for 72 hours? I believe so, yeah. Interesting. Huh. I didn't know that. I always just thought it was sort of arbitrary. It's like, well, let's just set it for three days. Um, so if you're thinking about suicide out there or have thought about suicide in the past, and 
and most of people who think about suicide are actually mostly on board with trying to survive. Just make sure you have extra measures. You know, talk to your therapist. Um, have a have a crisis plan. Have a safety plan. Don't isolate. Um, make sure you're talking to people. Uh, stay away from weapons. Um, get rid of your pills. Get rid of your guns, for that matter. Yes. Um, talk to um, experts. Have a hotline available. The best thing you can do, honestly, that I always tell people, if you can remember one thing, and this goes for clinicians and, and clients, is don't isolate. Like, yeah. if you're with other people, it is really hard to kill yourself. Yeah. If you're like, if you're if you're watching TV with your mom, it's really hard to just pick up a bottle of pills and kill yourself. One because your mom will stop you. Two because you don't want to do it in front of your mom. And three because there's something about because we're herd animals, there's something about being with another human being that soothes our system. Yeah. And there's something about being alone that aggravates our system. Makes sense. Um, when I am alone I for and I'm suffering or having a weird brain moment, my brain goes to some fucked up places. <laughs> like, just like some fucked up places, you sure. know? And... And when I'm with other people, like for some reason that just yeah. doesn't happen, you know. Right. And so, so the key is 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 don't isolate. And if you have a friend or family member, um, ask them if you can not let them isolate. You know, right. um, that might even mean in severe cases not letting them go to the bathroom by themselves. Sure. Um, so those are all things that we can do to get people through the, those five minutes or those three days that. They have a particular spike in suicidality and help them to get through it. If you know somebody who's, you wonder if they're thinking about suicide, it's okay to ask. You will not be planting an idea by asking. It's right. safe to do that and better. Right. And just ask, just say the word suicide. Don't don't say harm yourself because people can be confused and it can be, it can feel shaming to, yeah. to, 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 to tiptoe around it. Just be like, so, have you ever thought about suicide or killing yourself? Or even. killing yourself, right? Yeah, just um, put the turn on the table. Yeah, particularly if you're a clinician, you should know that uh, you shouldn't say harm yourself or be afraid to ask. There's research shows there's no connection between the question and behavior. Yeah, if anything, uh, there's probably a reduction in behavior if people ask because that yeah. begins a conversation. Right, it's also con- validating connects people. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, so. so so, so it's so direct, but I want to piggyback please. on what you're saying. If you have a friend who you're worried about, just ask them. Yeah. Are you thinking about suicide or I'm, how you doing? Are you depressed? Do you think about suicide? Sometimes I'm worried about you. Yeah. Like just flat out, bring it up. Maybe save a life. Maybe save a life. So people want me to talk about the TV show or the Netflix show, 13 Reasons Why. You haven't seen it. Did, did we finish David's question? Did we? David's question was about oh. having grief. Right. No, we did not. I had one more thought about that that I wanted to share, which is uh, there's a poem written by a guy named John Donne many, many centuries ago um, called For Whom the Bell Tolls. Yeah. And the final line is, don't ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. And it's actually about a bell that's ringing, you know, at somebody's funeral and somebody's wondering, well, who is that for? Who died? But I think the bell does toll for each of us. So when Anthony Bourdain kills himself, the bell tolls for me and it tolls for you. Because we are all one, really. We're all together. I love it. Thanks. 
so yeah also in line with that what i'll say is that death is sad and tragic and scary and um a loss yeah and whether it's someone who we know that's close to us whom we're attached to or someone that we're attached to that is a famous person when they leave the earth and either go into oblivion if if you don't believe in an afterlife or go to the other side if you do it, they're gone and it's fucking weird man like there 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 are times when I, i'm like so like with anthony bourdain he's he's been such a sort of background character yeah over the past 15 right. years for me yeah that i had it would you know it was and i do this every every time i lose someone I, I i always have to say like that person is no longer on the planet you know like they're no they don't it's one thing if they just like go on vacation or I'm not going to see them anymore or they've gone off Twitter or TV or something like I lose contact with them but they're still around you know what I mean they they still exist but it's a it's a totally weird it's like trying to imagine that the universe is an infinite it doesn't uh, compute with me that yeah. my grandma or Anthony Bourdain right. or my cat is just gone like just they're just gone yeah they they're not ac- accessible by anybody any on this plane anymore and it's um it's frightening and and upsetting and a loss and you i you know when i i've been studying grief and writing about grief and one of the things that really struck me was john bowlby's and other people's uh, evaluation of why we grieve. Yeah. And one of the thoughts, it's it's a really kind of, diff, it's impossible or difficult to, to study, but it makes sense to me that we evolved to when we're, you know, a lot of our emotional experience, our experiences are basically created when we're young. And so when we're three, for example, and our parents... Uh, leave us for some reason. Uh, we feel grief. We're sad. We're, we panic. We yell. We scream. We're shocked. Um, and when they come back, uh, and, and bef- but before they come back, we yearn for them. We yell for them. We uh, try to find them. And then when they come back, we feel good, and we're like, oh, thank God they, they, they weren't gone forever. And that's a you know evolutionary mechanism you can yeah. imagine would be good for a one, two, three, four, five, six-year-old, you know, that when separated from some something that you're attached to, you freak out yeah. and you're, it, it consumes your brain, which compels you back towards those people instead of just wandering off into the wilderness and being eaten by a tiger. Right. So, um, uh, and that basically translates into or is uh, retained that process into adulthood in a way that, is basically the same, but um, might not necessarily be evolutionarily needed anymore. But it's it's sort of like vestigial or something. Oh. Um, is the thing? Uh, I mean, you know, obviously we evolved to be attached to attachment figures of all times, of all ages, but at all time, you know. But but 
to lose a, for instance, a grandma who's 101 years old and to have like tremendous grief around that loss. Well, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm talking about ass. But the point is, is that, uh, it's perhaps the most intense when we're young and it, and that one makes the most sense. And that, that's where that yearning, that sort of magical thinking of like, well, I, I can find them. You yeah. know, I need to find them. Where are they? And that's why the brain will sometimes even just hallucinate somebody, you know, like your wife dies and you'll come around the corner, you'll see her. Yeah. And, and you'll be like, what, you know, right. lots of, ex- or you'll dream about that person. Oh yeah. Um, now some people have supernatural beliefs about that. It's fine. But, um, but you don't have to go that far to imagine your brain is, is still trying to find them and trying to invent them to please you because you're so desperate to have that person back. And this can apply to actually divorce or breakups oh, too. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't have to be death, you know? Um, so why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this because I felt that with Anthony Bourdain, you know, yeah. when he died, it was just like, so he's just gone. Yeah. You know, he's, because I just saw him like on TV recent or a or a YouTube clip like last week, you know, right. just like one of like I would always sort of click on, oh, he's in Singapore eating, you know, tentacles or something, you know. I was like, and and he was always just sort of down to earth too. Um, anyway, so to answer your question, um, uh, David and anyone else who and because I get these questions, I got these questions about Prince, I got these questions about David Bowie. As Bob said, feelings are feelings, and there's no reason to be ashamed of them. And anyone who wants to shame you for your feelings should be shamed, honestly. <laughs> um, uh, to to be incredibly sad about the loss of someone that you've never met is completely normal. Um, when Paul McCartney dies, which will happen, you know, eventually, uh, in all likelihood, before I go. Um, you know, that's going to be, that is going, that will be probably the most, you know, horrible, famous person for me. Cause I, I've been listening to Paul McCartney since I was born and have, was uh, Paul McCartney and the Beatles were this huge part of my life growing up, just humongous part of my life growing up, you know, just all the documentaries and the songs and the lyrics and the, the lore and the, um, their individual careers and whatnot. And, um, John Lennon was already dead by the time that I really got into it. And George Harrison, although I loved him, Paul McCartney is like my boy. <laughs> and, uh, and I've, you know, I've seen him many times live and, um, I just wanted to be him when I was a kid. <laughs> and so, uh, and I guess I still do to some extent. Um, so if anyone wants to shame me for having those feelings, they can go to fucking hell. So I want to talk about um, 13 Reasons Why. Yeah, sure. Netflix show. It is a, uh, there's been, second season just came out, so that's why people are asking that I talk about it. And I I just want to tell all the fans out there of this show and this podcast that I don't really feel like doing a deep dive. I did did a deep dive on the first season, but I don't really feel like doing a deep dive on the second season um, for a number of reasons of which I don't want to get into. But... um, partially because I just don't have time to to watch uh, it and to take the notes and to blah, blah, blah. It, it, you know, it would be a minimum of 13 hours plus um, however, however many hours of research and podcasting and stuff. But anyway, I, I just want to summarize because it kind of relates to this. Cause, so 13 Reasons Why, for people don't know, including Bob, 
is a uh, it was a, a book that was actually translated to Netflix by a friend of mine, Brian Yorkey. Oh, really? Uh, who um, wrote a, a Tony Award winning musical called um, it used to be called uh, Feeling Electric, I think, but it became Next to Normal uh, Broadway musical. And it's about a family, but the woman and the mother has um, psychosis and bipolar. And uh, I believe she ends up killing herself in the musical. So it's, it's got comedy in it, but it's, and it's dark comedy as well. And I, I knew Brian while he was developing this musical and just thought like, Oh, this is off Broadway. Although this will never be recognized. It's too dark and it's too real or something, but, um, but it's a wonderful musical and, um, and, and the Tony system loved him for that. And anyway, so he's translating, these books into the screen and and so um and i've reached out to him to come on the podcast but uh he's he's a little too busy right now um maybe one day but um so the show is about this it starts with a suicide the the story starts with this the lead character killing herself and then uh this guy who liked her in high school, they're high school kids, um, gets these 13 or these, these cassettes with 13 sides. So it'd be, what is that? Seven cassettes, um, actual cassettes. So it's sort of like retro, you know, they're trying to be hipster about like cassettes instead of iPads and stuff. And so each cassette side is dedicated to uh, it's 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 voice recording from this girl who killed herself, and she's explaining how her road to suicide and how each person basically influenced her to eventually kill herself. Huh. Um, like on one, so on one side of one tape, it's talking about her relationship with this guy who like slut shamed her, and in another side, it's someone who raped her, and in another side, it's the counselor who wouldn't listen to her and another side it's her her parents or whoever you know it's it's so you can see how this would be a compelling book and tv show right because it's 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 chapterized already right and um it has created a lot of controversy um by the look of your face i'm thinking you realize one controversy which is what it's about blame it sounds like it's about blame right right it is basically i mean it basically blames people for other people's suicide. It's a which, very aggressive act. Yeah. Right. Very hostile. Very hostile act. Is it now, a hostile show? Is it like got an angry No. Tone? I mean, it definitely has elements of that, but she's not like... She doesn't come across like, fuck you, this is why I killed myself. It's more like, so I did this, but I just want you to know, you know, what happened or something. Huh. You know, it's more like... Um, it's more like a really detailed suicide note or something and not so much of a it's not it's not super aggressive. Okay. How did you like it? Um I thought there were parts of the show that were really interesting. It's it's a teen show though is a thing. Like it is mostly teen like if you strip away the suicide which is obviously this major element. Sure. It's basically a teen uh, soap opera, yeah. you know, made for teens. Like angst. What's that? Youth youthful angst. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. 
I've never heard of it. Uh, that's your German coming through, angst. That's right. <laughs> Jawohl. <laughs> um, and the interplay between the jocks and the nerds oh, okay. and the AV club people and the parents and the, you know, it's, it's very, it's like, it's like, it's like any other, uh, you know, drama like that, but for, for teenagers, but it has this overarching thing about suicide and, and so, you know, it's not really made for me. I'm yeah. a 47 year old man who, his favorite show is The Americans. Did you ever watch The Americans? Oh, yeah. I watched the whole thing. Oh, did you finish the whole thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Season six. Yeah. I finished it yesterday. Yeah. Man. Would you, did you like it? Yeah, it was good. I thought season six started out kind of boring, uh-huh. but by mid, it just like, da 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 Yeah, I agree. And I thought, I mean, without spoiling it, I thought it ended, I was trying to think like, because I was like, oh, that's an interesting kind of... I mean, it's sort of predictable, but also kind of interesting. But on the other hand, I was like, well, how else could you have ended that right. without it being cheesy? Yeah, great or, point. Or, and or without it basically reward... Because, you know, these are spies who murdered people yeah. who were just innocent witnesses to their crimes. Yeah. Um, or, or, or instrumental but completely innocent as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, well, I got to kill this guy because yes. he knows something or, you know. Yeah. And so it's 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 interesting how I would cheer for them yeah. to steal American secrets or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. You sort of sympathize with them. Right. You don't sort of. You actually sympathize with these people. Right. right? Um, but if you just heard their story as a news report, you would. these are like psychopathic, horrible people. And so, so I was trying to think like, well, there's only, there has to be something bad that happens to them. Like it can't be a happy ending really. But at the same time, um, anyway, I just, I just thought it ended really beautifully. Yeah. And yet I had like, but wait, you know, like there was like, you know, (laughs) anyway. So anyway, 13 reasons why is not really for me. And, and so, um. But there was a lot, there's been a lot of controversy about it, and it, so this isn't to insult adults who like this show. <laughs> like, I don't want to make it seem like only teenagers would like this mm-hmm. show. So there's a lot of adults that like this show. I think what you're saying, though, is that the audience that, in general, the writers are targeting is young people. Are what? Young people. Yeah, or people who like this sort of thing, you know, yeah. and and uh, and and definitely it's being watched by a lot of young people, yeah. you know, like young people, like I can't imagine many teenagers at least not knowing about it, you know. Sure. Um, anyway, so the controversies around the first season were that this was uh, they have a ex- probably the most graphic suicide scene I'd ever seen, which was surprising to me. Because I've seen, I don't shy away from like gore yeah. in movies, right? And I've seen a lot of really gory things. You know, I've seen David Lynch movies and yeah. um, horror movies at times. You know, and and seen some pretty graphic, uh, you know, violence and and gore. Yeah. And yet, for some reason, I had never seen just a just a static camera shot of an actual suicide. And in 13 Reasons, I mean, I, I cringe just thinking about this scene. It is, 
it is it was hard to watch yeah. and like i told people when i watched this when i did the episode on the first season i said if if you have some kind of trauma around suicide like you have a friend or you or you think about suicide yourself i caution people to not watch this scene because it it is even for someone like me who doesn't have traumas around that like it it mildly traumatized me it's so graphic and realistic and Oh, painful, you know. On the other hand, why do I? Why have I seen uh, hundreds of heads being blown off? <laughs> you know, yeah. Hundreds of arms being chopped off. Hundreds sure. of limbs being blown off. Right. And yet, never seen a suicide. You know, like that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Like the when I saw Saving Private Ryan, that left oh. an, that left an impression. Oh yeah. But on some level, you could say, like, well, shouldn't we know what war really looks like? Well, right. You can make an argument for that. Sure. So I kind of made a similar argument about this. It's like, well, shouldn't we know what suicide really looks like? Like, it happens. It's, it, and we can't turn the other way. Like, it, this, is a re, this is much more real than murder. In Washington State, I think we have twice the amount of suicides than homicides. Oh, is that right? Something like that. Yeah. Different states have different things, but sure. the point is, is that um, suicide is incredibly prevalent, and the things that we focus on, like murder, homicide, terrorism, for example, like if we're just going on body count, suicide is astronomically higher than terrorism. The amount of people who die from terrorism every year is like in the United States is something like maximum of like. 15 or something, maybe a hundred, maybe, I mean, you know, after nine 11, yeah, I saw a stat, maybe a hundred or something is like the max of something. It's some kind of fairly low. Whereas do they, do they call the school shootings? Do they call that terrorism nowadays? Um, it depends. Yeah. Okay. But even when you add those up, it, you know, 200, you know, uh-huh. it, it doesn't, it doesn't amount to that much, but suicide is thousands, but suicides, thousands, tens of thousands Yeah, in the United States every, every year. And yet, how many depictions of actual suicide are shown. Um, so it's like, if you have a thing against showing suicide, you really should have a problem with any kind of violence on TV, you know, in my mind. The other thing that people are saying is that because of suicide contagion, that depictions of suicide in fiction will cause people to kill themselves. And actually the, Suicide Association, I can't remember their name in in the United States or whatever the prevalent suicide association, uh, made a public statement and condemned 13 Reasons Why for for irresponsible um, uh, behavior that would lead to people killing themselves. Yeah, I got to say, that show, I knew about it and it scared me and I didn't want to look at it and I didn't want my people looking at it either. Uh, You know, if I was a therapist of someone who, I don't, currently have any but if i was you know like a dbt person i would you know there's a lot of things to watch on netflix you know let's steer clear of this one yeah um but when you look at the research with which there isn't much but there is some there doesn't seem to be any signal that demonstrates that fictional depictions of suicide actually influences people well that's good news yeah i mean it's hard to measure that exactly okay um, because you can't ask someone after they're dead, like why they did it. Right. And plus, even if you did ask people, like they, they're self-reporting and you can't really rely on that. 
um, you know, Ted Bundy said that he killed all those people because of pornography, you know, just asking someone their motivation isn't always the it, best yeah. tool to actually know the mechanism that leads to behavior. But, right. um, uh, so having said that we have demonstrable suicide contagion around, uh, people, you know, or, or nonfiction people, but when it comes to fiction, we seem to have maybe a, a mechanism that kicks in around like, well, that's fiction. It's not real. You know, having said that the 13 reasons why seen is extremely real. So, yeah. um, so anyway, it, when I talked about the first season, I, I basically said, you know, cause when it first came out, there was just tons of bad press about it, you know, and, and a lot of, a lot of people wringing their hands, a lot of parents worried about stuff. And what I was, what I was saying was, um, that isn't it interesting that when we have a show that comes out about suicide, that somehow now now we're wringing our hands. When you have video games and all sorts of other things that depict murder and and gore and all these other ways, then somehow that's completely fine. I mean, the Avengers movies, how many people die in that? You know, several people die, and so it, it's just interesting that we would be completely outraged against something that is. Um, shall we say traditionally a female thing, and this is a female character too. Oh, yeah. um, that so there's, I think there's a little bit of sexism, a little bit of ageism in there, and just a general uh, phobia around suicide and death and, and acknowledging such things. It's scary to think about, and so we would rather not think about it. And so we just like don't make fiction that depicts this. You know, um, was was my general thesis of just like. Um, I think everyone's just reacting to that. Uh, now, is there an actual uh, causal mechanism for people to kill themselves? I could imagine it being true, and and we should think about that. But really, uh, what does that mean exactly? You know, does that mean that we s- don't have any depictions in fiction around suicide? Like, it seems funny to me for yeah. some reason. Um, it seems to me like the more important thing is we need to have more robust systems of of assessment, treatment, and prevention, and not necessarily ban certain kinds of media. I agree with you. I mean, I just sort of feel like taking that off the table just somehow, mm, it's it's the absence of depiction could, you know, increase, uh, what am I trying to say? Fill in the blanks. Uh, I don't know what you're trying to say. Oh, well, shit. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like making it taboo to talk about or you know, in this case, describing a show just feels wrong to me. Yeah. Feels um, like Nazism or or communism or something. But I I think it also, you know, there's like, um, it it, uh, draws, it attracts as a result of the taboo nature of things. I don't really believe in taboos, so. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of unmeasurable aspects that might be actually beneficial to having a show like 13 Reasons Why. Let, so let's say, you know, if we were God or the universe and we could measure this thing, like I would imagine that it's possible that uh, 10 to 20 people, this show was the last factor that pushed them over the edge. And that's the, that's the key to remember. It's, it's not like 13 Reasons Why just takes a perfectly non-suicidal person and causes them to kill themselves. It's someone had... 99 reasons to kill themselves and 13 reasons why was the last one. So if we can focus on the other 99, then maybe, you know, 
13 Reasons Why won't actually matter. Because yeah. how many people watched 13 Reasons Why and didn't even think about killing themselves, you know? So to, foc- to scapegoat 13 Reasons Why and not fucking scapegoat our dismal uh, spending of public dollars on mental health and not spending money in our public school systems to educate people and not have on-site therapists who are... Uh, supported with confidential situations and not provide parents with education and not uh, raise awareness around this, I'm just going to say, you know, uh, those are bigger issues. Uh, 13 Reasons Why is not is not the thing to focus on, but somehow that's what everyone's focused so, Bravo. So, so I could see that um, for, you know, a small set of people, 13 Reasons Why could have been that last factor and they killed themselves. And so you could actually say, that 13 Reasons Why is bad, um, however small that factor was, uh, because it was created. But you could also see a lot of other benefits, like um, how long have you and I been talking about suicide at this point uh, because of 13 Reasons Why on this podcast, yeah, because right. people are asking me about that. That's raising awareness, adding nuance, uh, you know, getting people to not have this be taboo, uh, educating people. Yeah. Um, in the media, among teenagers, you know, how many conversations did it start? Because it's really about bullying and date rape and just flat-out rape and um, uh, connection and listening to people and paying attention. Like, um, you know, it, it, I'm, you know, how many people are slightly more motivated to pay more attention, you know, to this sort of stuff? So, so I think that um, overall, I think these things are good. Now, you know, I don't know. There's no way I can measure that. I Are can't. You, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Are you saying that that... Because I think my impression of that show is that it romanticized suicide, but I don't get the impression that that's actually true. Yeah. It really is in the eye of the beholder. Okay. I mean, on some level, it kind of does, because the hero in the story is this girl who yeah. was bullied and raped, and, and then she gets her she gets to win, and everyone else is kind of left suffering. And she gets to kind of rub it in their face in this sort of, um, you know, uh, what do they say? Not right. Yeah. Righteous manner. Um, kind That's of a fun fantasy. Yeah. Kind of though. Yeah, um, kind of. she's still dead yeah, still and she's, dead. and she still killed herself. Yeah. And you're not like, yeah, she's awesome. You know, like yeah. there's, it's more this other guy who is the main character who doesn't kill himself, who, uh, is, um, this hero he's like the everyman kind of character but anyway um the second season which i haven't seen but i have read synopses and heard podcasts talk about it and i I have seen a couple scenes i will say that so they basically just went back to the original story and um, told other parts of the story that we hadn't seen from the previous story. So it was like, it was like scenes you didn't see during this span of time, you know, like other background stories or other interpretation or fleshing out characters. So it doesn't, there's not another, it it's, takes place in this. And there's a trial of, um, I don't know who's being convicted, but someone's being, con- maybe that someone's being sued or something. And, and all these people are, all these kids are being called onto the stand. And so episodes are people telling their story, from what I understand. And also what I've heard is that there are um, more graphic, horrible scenes. Um, 
not of suicide this time, but of like rape and um, rape with implements and other kinds of things. Which I don't want to watch that show. Right. Which, you know, if you don't want to watch it, then don't. But there's a similar backlash and a similar kind of sensationalism um, and a similar, shall we say, artistic decision-making around let's show it and let's, you know, let's really show this. And uh, from what I understand, it, it's, it's the, sh- the second season got a little out of control and... Um, whatever sort of redeeming qualities the first season had, the second season kind of lost things. Now, having said that, I'm guessing that there is still a, you know, a section of the population who loved the first season and loved the second season. So, um, and it's, you know, it's a piece of entertainment. It's not, it's not a public health educational show. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what I think is another thing that's interesting about this conversation in the media is like, 13 Reasons Why is treated like public... That People are talking about it as a, as a public health thing. And I'm like, no one looks to Star Wars or, you know, or any, for that matter, any actual soap opera. Casino? That, yeah. That, that has, Goodfellas? Yeah. That has, like, all sorts of, you know, implications and violence and, like, messages that it's, that it's giving audiences and teenagers, by the way. Um, no one says like, well, you know, what's being taken away from this or um, should this be even being made is with the question, you know, should, should, is this irresponsible? You know, they, they, but they do, they, politicians will raise these questions as if the question itself provides the answer. Like the answer must be yes. Even though there's no data that suggests there's any link between violent video games and violence. Right. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate your point here about um, what's the bigger picture here. This is just one little show. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. It has its place in the universe. Fine. But if we really want to solve a problem, let's not simplify it like down to one stupid show. Right. You know, what's going on in the rest of the world? Right. Similar to video games. Yeah. Might video games be that hundredth factor that influences someone to um, be violent against another human being or something? Um, okay. You know, it's not a stretch of the imagination that uh, if you are... Um, have been abused, if you're alone, if you have been raised in a culture around guns, if you're male, and if you've been socialized to be tough, you've been socialized not to talk about your emotions, you've been socialized to be aggressive when you're upset, if you've seen countless TV shows and news reports about particular perpetrators of these uh, events, if you've seen YouTube videos aggrandizing people who, like Elliot Roger, who who did these kinds of things, and they're heroes now. If, if you are being bullied, if your parents aren't listening to you, uh, you don't have a mental health system that is very welcoming to you. You have a, maybe even a therapist that didn't know how to help, didn't know how to talk to a teenager who doesn't know how to who doesn't trust therapists. Um, you add all that up, and then yeah, they play a video game. You know uh, that could have been a minor factor, I suppose, if anything. But yeah, let's focus on the other things. You know, let's focus on helping families to love each other. Let's ho- let's focus on helping kids to feel like they're okay people. Let's let's focus on helping people to get along better. Let's focus on not pressuring children to make them feel like shit because 
they're not getting an A or a B or because they're not, you know, on the cheerleading squad or they can't sing like an angel. Let's let's focus on helping uh, parents to not be so stressed out with work so that they can't pay attention to their newborn. Let's focus on family planning so people don't have kids when they don't want to have kids and consequently don't have a setup to be able to raise that kid. Let's focus on uh, health care so that people aren't uh, going bankrupt because they um, – now I just – I hear like the presidential music behind me right now and like – Kirk Honda for president, you know, like I'm running and this is my, uh, you know, you got my vote. This is sounding like a fucking, you know, what do they call it? A, what do they call stump it? Stump speech? Stump speech. I wanted to call it a, a um, soapbox speech, but it, it could be that as well. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things. Yeah. As a society, we could be doing and banning certain Netflix shows is probably not one of them or certain video games is probably not one of them. All right, you know, Bob. Put it like that. <laughs> What's the final word on grief and suicide and 13 Reasons Why and stump speeches? Oh, it's hard to be alive. It's hard to be alive. Yeah. I don't know how to sum it up. I feel bad for David. I don't know why. I, don't, I think David's okay, but I just feel bad for him. And for the people who have died. Yeah. And for the people who think about killing themselves. Mm. And for um, people who are suffering from a loss and for um, Brian Yorkie, who is incurring tons of bad press because of his um, association with this TV show. Well, if he comes on the podcast. Yeah. Knowing him, though, like, he is probably laughing himself to sleep every night. Like, like he... Um, so, he's perfect for, for um, high school depictions because he was huge... He was a huge figure in our high school. One, he was a large dude, just tall, big guy. But he also, uh, he was ASB president, for example. What's that? Um, president, student president yeah. of the school, not just of your class, yeah. but like student president. Um, he was always involved in various different things. We were, him and I were in plays together. and To your year. What? Did he graduate with you? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. shit. I, uh, I spent the night at his house. We actually would... We were writing a musical together because oh, cool. I was a songwriter in my yeah. later high school years, and we started to write a musical together. There's no way I would have been able to write a real musical. I'm not that kind of musician. But but he was just like, well, here's a musician. Let's write a music. And we started writing a musical together. Yeah. Yeah. We would have we would have parties at his house and um, sleepovers and mixtapes. Ex- you know, we did all that stuff. And well, we were into the same him. music. No, I... After high school, didn't see him very much. Oh, he yeah. was he was so busy, and he traveled. He, he was always in New York and San Francisco and stuff. And and um, I've seen him at um, high school reunions and also at um, like weddings and stuff. And oh, occasionally we'll 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 text each other and stuff. The one thing I learned hey, you're from coming him, up on your thirty, yeah, which I'm planning right now. By the way, oh, you're doing it. Well, it didn't start out. So I was a part of the big planning committee of the 20 year no kidding and the 30 years coming up high school reunion and i have been we've been reaching out to the same people uh but like everyone is kind of flaking or just i don't know yeah i I, as a program director at my university i learned a lot of skills of administration you know and i also learned that and 
there are some processes that really can only happen if one person just makes it happen. Yeah. You know, there's, there's committees, you know, just think if, if you've never been on a committee, just think about group projects you've done in school where, uh, any weak link completely throws the whole thing off. And sometimes it, you just, it just requires a leader to step forward and say, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And so that's where I'm at with the reunion. I'm just like, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And because it, it's not that big of a deal, one, because it's not like I'm planning a wedding or something, you know? It's like, plus with Facebook and, and I guess Facebook, um, it makes it really easy. Yeah. Like, so I spent about 15 minutes last night d- um, designing a survey. And then I, uh, you know, sent it out to everyone over Facebook and now I'm getting all these responses and I'm just going to do what the survey says, you know, and basically what the survey is saying is, um, people are willing to pay something 25, 50 bucks for a ticket. And, uh, they, they basically want a private room at a bar. They don't want a banquet. Um, they don't want a super, um, uh, casual event, like at a regular bar where there's other other customers there. They want like a private room at a bar, you know, 25 buck ticket, um, you know, food and, and drink. They want to mingle. And that, yeah. that, and I asked like, do you want dancing or karaoke? You know, and says, people, people just want to mingle. And so, so that's what I'm going to do. And, that, nice. and if no one comes, it's like, well, that's what the survey said. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like I asked everyone and it's not hard to find a venue that would, um, you know, sign up for 25 buck a head kind of a thing. But, um, painted table. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's not there anymore. Yeah. Is it? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, it's something else now, but... Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Not a lot of things stay around. No. You uh, do. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and Maneki, the Japanese restaurant in the, uh, Chinatown. It's, it's been there for like 150 years. Wow. It's like the old... It's reportedly the oldest restaurant in Seattle that's, I didn't know that's that. still in operation. Yeah. And it's my favorite Japanese restaurant in Seattle. Really? Maneki. What's, what's, what, um, what's great about it? It feels like my grandma's kitchen. There you go. Got it. And it also has a diverse menu. Like most people, when they think of Japanese food today, they think of sushi. Yeah. Sushi is like... I don't know, 1% of Japanese food. It'd be like if you're Italian and people are really into just salami. You know, it's like, what about pizza and spaghetti and like, you know. Antipasto and yeah, uh, olive French and bread or wine. And, yeah, wine. Yeah. It's like for some reason when it comes to Japanese cuisine, which is just as complex as as French cuisine sure, food, or Italian food. cuisine. Right. Um, Everyone focuses on sushi and really just like a particular kind of sushi, which was basically invented by people in the United States, which is with the rice on the outside, which is fine. I like that too, but it's just an extreme niche thing. And when I want Japanese food, I want options. You know, I want, I want, uh, I'm getting my mouth watering. You know, I want, you know, onigiri. I want fried fish. I want, um, uh, Fun Yu, which actually is a Japanese, but I want kimchi. I want uh, fry. I want pickled plums and uh, pickled uh, uh, onions and I don't know uh, takwan and um, teriyaki stuff and uh, yaki yaki soba and uh, there's just a, there's just all these things that are soul food to me and oh, right. and sushi is you know it's a part of it but. Uh, but so half the Japanese restaurants in Seattle, it's only sushi. Yeah. That's all they got. They have some, they, and they'll have edamame. 
which honestly, I didn't grow up with edamame. So when I when I think of edamame, I only think about Americanized Japanese restaurants. I, you know, I don't know if that's a big thing in Japan, but um, but people love edamame, and I'm yeah. like, you know, it's just beans. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's just beans with a little bit of salt, salt. on it. Like like you can you can. You can you can boil up some lima beans at home, you know. It's it's not that uh, much of a difference, you know. But anyway, um, so it has so a broad menu that has a lot of great items that are appealing to Japanese Americans um, and not so appealing. There 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 are items on that menu that you would look at and you'd be like, I don't even know what that is, and I don't think I would like it, <laughs> you know. Um, the other thing is that in a typical Japanese fashion, it is designed really poorly. But interestingly, so there's basically four different rooms um, in that in that restaurant. There's like a bar area that's super cramped. There's a the regular restaurant floor, which is also super cramped. They have tatami rooms, which are not super cramped and are great. Um, you know, you sit on the on the floor and blah blah blah. Um, and then they have a then there's this back secret bar. This you know that. Uh, you can order f- you can order food in all the places, but it's like totally you know like think of like a um, Studio Ghibli uh, cartoon. Do you, do you ever watch Studio Ghibli? Or, no. Oh, um, I just think of like I don't know. It's just super complicated. Like it'd be a like if someone wanted to design just for a movie sake, like a, a very complicated Japanese restaurant that didn't make any sense. You know. Um, that's what this restaurant's like. And that's, that's the way a lot of Japanese things are designed, actually. But Japanese people are extremely, um, uh, in general, they, they can design things very well. But if it's one thing that is not to American cultural standards, is their uh, attention to space. Because <laughs> in Tokyo and other cities, there's not a lot of space. So everything's real crammed in. People get real used to things being crammed in. And... Uh, I find that Japanese restaurants and grocery stores um, have just a terrible sense. It, I feel claustrophobic, you know, like Wajimaya. Do you know Wajimaya? Sure. Um, the old Wajimaya was even worse, man. That was just like the worst. But the new Wajimaya, have I ever ranted to you about the new Wajimaya? You have not. And, and the new Wajimaya is literally 20 years old. So, but, so, so the old Wajimaya, so it's this Japanese grocery store, and it has everything. It's got, like, books and food and fish, and it's just this gigantic Japanese-American extravaganza. So much so that when I have Japanese relatives that come into town, we just go to the grocery store. Like, imagine that. It's like, ooh, you know, everyone's in town. Let's go to the grocery store. We'll go to Safeway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, the, our German relatives are in town. Let's go to QFC. <laughs> And it, it's the same, but because, but you know, it, because that's our home it, and we, and like my dad knew the owners and everything anyway. Neat. So they just, so they decided that they needed to expand because they were making, they were doing so much business. And so they bought another lot nearby and, um, and they could completely redesign everything, you know, from the ground up. And so they could like make it actually flow well. Well, one of the, th- so there's all these problems with that, but the major problem is the, is the um, parking lot. So you don't think about parking lot design until it's bad. <laughs> yeah. But but like um, like think like tell me you're a smart person you could probably just think of it off the top of your head. What what are some key elements to a parking lot that that need to be in place in order for it to flow well? 
gotta have cars able to go by them, you know, by each other. And, you know, you back out, you're not just backing out into somebody else's spot, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. You know, you okay. That's room. good. The, the um, parking lot is okay with that. Mm-hmm. What are some other elements that you could think of? That, lines. What? Lines. Okay. They're, they're, they got lines. What, what are some other elements you can I think of? I don't know. Well, the one that I am getting at, the one that they're terrible at, is p- the, the pedestrian versus car situation. So think of every parking lot you've ever been in. Right. Like, w- what, where's the entrance versus where's the entrance to the building? Do you know what I mean? The entrance to the parking lot is usually far away. Oh, yeah. You don't put it by the front door. Right. Because especially with a place like Wajamaya where you, where you have lines of people trying to get in. Because, High traffic. Right. So the, the line of cars getting in and the parking um, you know, booth that you, know, you take money is right in front of the front door. Right in front. So every time you leave or come, you have to traverse these cars right when if you just put that booth on the other side of the parking lot which would have actually even been better for traffic on the streets outside because the the street farthest away from the entrance has actually more lanes um you would have solved the problem and it sounds like a obvious thing to do you know but again because japanese designers they just don't it's like well you know who needs space you know there's no space in the world (laughs) And then, you know, they, so they designed the new Wajamaya, and at first it was glorious because they had these really Americanized huge aisles with tons of space. But then they proceeded to fill all those aisles mm. with a bunch of junk <laughs> and displays and delis and, you know, and so it's, it's, I mean, it's better than it was before, but. So this is the episode in which I just bitch about parking at Wajamaya. <laughs> All right, well, that does it for that episode. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.